If you're enjoying this Crush Step 1 podcast, you can now get the content along with the content of the Med Prep to Go Step 1 Questions podcast ad-free in one bundle. Just go to medpreptogo.com and find our new subscription podcast called the Med Prep to Go Step 1 Bundle. Hi, everyone. This is Ted O'Connell, one of the lead authors of Crush Step 1. Before we get started with this podcast episode, I want to tell you about a new project I'm working on called Med Prep to Go. It's a free online and audio USMLE question bank for step one and step two. And the goal of this project is to reduce the cost of medical education by developing a really high quality question bank that will be free and by putting it in audio format to give you some time back in your day. It's still relatively early in this project and we are actively adding new questions to the question banks and releasing additional episodes of our podcast. I'd like to encourage you to go check it out at medpreptogo.com. And if you want to get involved and learn how to write USMLE style questions and contribute to this question bank, you can do that through the website at medpreptogo.com, or you can email me directly at ted.medpreptogo at gmail.com. And if you decide to get involved with learning how to write questions, we'll make sure you get some really good directions and mentorship through the process so that it's actually a really good learning experience for you and something that you can add to your CV. So I look forward to working with you. Please go check that out and we'll get started with this episode of the podcast. I'm Ted O'Connell, one of the authors of Crush Step One, the ultimate USMLE Step One review along with my co-authors, Ryan Pedigo and Thomas Blair. I am also the chief content officer for Inside the Boards. This is a Crush Step 1 podcast based on the second edition of our best-selling book. The goal is to provide you high-yield and high-quality audio content of the book to help you study on the go and reclaim some of the time in your day. In this first section of the pulmonology chapter, we're going to focus on the anatomy of the respiratory system. The lungs. The right lung has three lobes, whereas the left has two lobes and a lingula. The left lung has one fewer lobe to accommodate space occupied by the heart. Each lung is located in its respective pleural cavity enclosed by parietal pleura. The parietal pleura are innervated by somatic sensory nerves, which allow the sensation of sharp and localized pain. Inflammation of the pleura causes pain that worsens on inspiration and is referred to as pleuritic chest pain. This characteristic pain can help distinguish pulmonary pathologic conditions like pneumonia, pneumothorax, and pulmonary embolism from cardiac pathologic conditions like a myocardial infarction. The trachea bifurcates into the left and right main bronchi at the carina. For step one, it's important to know that the right main bronchus is wider, shorter, and more vertical than the left main bronchus. Consequently, aspirated foreign bodies are far more likely to enter and obstruct the bronchi of the right side of the lung. An object aspirated while standing or sitting upright will usually be found in the inferior portion of the right lower lobe, whereas an object aspirated while supine will most often end up in the superior portion of the right lower lobe. Bronchopulmonary Segments 
Each bronchopulmonary segment of the lung has its own neurovascular supply that's not shared with surrounding bronchopulmonary segments. This is important because each bronchopulmonary segment can function independently. A single segment can be removed surgically, like to remove a tumor, without affecting the other segments. The trachea bifurcates into the right and left main bronchi at the carina. These main bronchi divide further into lobar bronchi, which subsequently divide into segmental bronchi, totaling 10 in each lung. A single segmental bronchus is the core of each bronchopulmonary segment. In addition to a segmental bronchus, each bronchopulmonary segment is also composed of two arteries, located centrally within each segment, and veins and lymphatics, located peripherally. Specifically, these include the following. One branch of the pulmonary artery. These branches carry deoxygenated blood from the right side of the heart and are centrally located within the bronchopulmonary segment. Pulmonary veins that return oxygenated blood to the left atrium. These are located peripherally within each segment. One branch of the bronchial artery. These branches originate from the thoracic aorta and carry highly oxygenated blood to supply the lung parenchyma and stroma. Like the pulmonary artery branch, the bronchial artery is also centrally located within each segment. Bronchial veins, located peripherally along each segment. These return deoxygenated blood that has circulated through the lung parenchyma and stroma to the azygous venous system. Lymphatics, located peripherally along each segment. And autonomic fibers, located around the segmental bronchi and blood vessels. These are composed of parasympathetic branches from the vagus nerve, which innervate smooth muscle in the walls of terminal bronchioles, and sympathetic fibers, which innervate vascular smooth muscle. Pulmonary airways. The pulmonary airways can be divided into a conducting zone and an alveolar respiratory zone. This division is based on a fundamental distinction in the function of these two zones. The conducting zone. The function of this zone is to conduct air from outside into the alveolar respiratory zone where gas exchange occurs. No actual gas exchange occurs in the conducting zone. Thus, it comprises the anatomic dead space. The conducting zone is composed of the first 16 generations or branches of the respiratory tree and consists of the nose, pharynx, trachea, bronchi, and terminal bronchioles. As the generation number increases and the airways decrease in size, there's a decrease in the amount of mucus secreting cells, cilia, submucosal glands, and cartilage in the airway walls. At the level of the terminal bronchioles, the airway resistance is also the lowest. Although the area of an individual bronchiole is small, the total cross-sectional area of all the bronchioles is high, which results in an overall low resistance. The respiratory zone. This zone participates in gas exchange. It begins with the respiratory bronchioles and alveolar ducts, terminating blindly as alveolar sacs, or asini. The alveolus, the singular form of alveoli, is the fundamental unit 
of gas exchange. Cells of the respiratory system. There are many specialized cells of the respiratory system. The important types will be covered here. The mucosa of the conducting zone of the respiratory system is composed primarily of ciliated pseudostratified columnar cells. These ciliated cells play a critical role in sweeping mucus secretions and debris out of the lungs and toward the mouth. The density of these cells gradually decreases as the airway progresses distally from the conducting to respiratory zones, and the respiratory bronchioles are the last segment of the airway in which these ciliated cells can be found. At the level of the bronchioles, the epithelium transitions to a simple cuboidal epithelium. At the transition to the alveoli, the epithelium becomes a simple squamous epithelium that helps to facilitate gas exchange with the exception of the type 2 pneumocytes. Goblet cells are also abundant within the conducting zone epithelium and produce mucus secretions that trap particulate matter and help moisten the air. These cells, like the ciliated pseudostratified columnar epithelial cells, also progressively decrease in number as the airway progresses distally. They are no longer found beyond the terminal bronchioles. Thus, they are exclusive to the conducting zone and are not found in the respiratory zone. This is logical because if goblet cells were present distal to the ciliated pseudostratified columnar cells, mucus would be produced that could not be cleared. Kolchitsky cells, or enterochromaffin cells, are neuroendocrine cells found throughout the conducting zone. Because they're neuroendocrine cells, they stain positive for chromogranin A. These cells secrete peptide hormones that regulate airway and vascular tone. They're important for step one because they're the cells of origin for small cell carcinoma of the lung, a particularly aggressive form of lung cancer that will be discussed later in more detail. Clara cells are non-ciliated dome-shaped cells found within the airways of the conducting zones and respiratory bronchioles. These cells secrete a surfactant-like material. These secretions coat the luminal surface of the bronchioles to prevent luminal adhesion so that should they collapse, as they often do, these bronchioles are able to re-expand. Type 1 alveolar cells, or pneumocytes, are membranous pneumocytes that comprise 95% of the single-layered alveolar wall. These cells are extremely thin, simple, squamous epithelial cells that can no longer divide. Their luminal surfaces face the airspace. Their function is to participate in gas exchange across the alveolar capillary membrane. Type 2 alveolar cells, or pneumocytes, are cuboidal cells that comprise the remaining 5% of the single-layered alveolar wall. These cells have two critical functions. They are the regenerative cells of the lung. When lung damage occurs, these cells proliferate and have the ability to regenerate type 1 cells. Type 2 alveolar cells also contain foamy vesicles called lamellar bodies, which continuously produce pulmonary surfactant that covers the luminal surface of the alveoli. Surfactant is a protein lipid material that reduces surface tension on the surface of the alveoli so they can expand more easily during inspiration. The main lipid component of surfactant is diapalmatoyl phosphatidylcholine. 
It is important to know that corticosteroids help to increase surfactant production, whereas high levels of insulin, as seen in infants of diabetic mothers, inhibit surfactant production. Mature levels of surfactant are not reached until 34 to 35 weeks of gestation. Thus, premature neonates may experience respiratory distress if the mother is not given corticosteroids before delivery to help increase surfactant production. Diaphragm and Accessory Respiratory Muscles The diaphragm is the primary respiratory muscle and is essentially the only muscle used during quiet inspiration at rest in healthy individuals. Active downward movement or contraction of the diaphragm generates an increase in negative pleural pressure that causes the lungs to expand and fill with air during inspiration. Similarly, passive upward motion or relaxation of this crucial muscle causes an increase in pleural pressure and results in an increased pressure in the airways, facilitating expiration. The diaphragm is innervated by the phrenic nerve, which originates from the C3, C4, and C5 spinal nerves. Remember, C3, C4, and C5 keep the diaphragm alive. In addition to the motor fibers to the diaphragm, the phrenic nerve also contains pain fibers which is why pain originating from the diaphragm can be referred to the shoulders. The diaphragm also forms the boundary between the thoracic and abdominal cavities, so a number of important structures found in both these compartments must traverse the diaphragm. The inferior vena cava traverses the diaphragm at the T8 level. The esophagus and two trunks of the vagus nerve traverse the diaphragm at the T10 level. The aorta, thoracic duct, and azygous vein traverse the diaphragm at the T12 level. Although the diaphragm is the predominant muscle of respiration used by healthy individuals during quiet inspiration and expiration, several other muscles assist in respiration during exercise and in certain diseases in which airway resistance is increased, like asthma. During vigorous inspiration, the external intercostal scalene, and sternocleidomastoid muscles may be used. During exercise and conditions of increased airway resistance, expiration is aided by the abdominal muscles and internal intercostal muscles, which pull the ribs inward and downward. Next, we'll move on to respiratory physiology. Spirometry. Spirometry is an important clinical tool used to measure a variety of lung volumes. When at least two lung volume measurements are added together, it is termed lung capacity, and alterations in these lung capacities are important in diagnosing several diseases, as we'll discuss later. For now, let's briefly review the different lung volume measurements and capacities. And I'd encourage you to follow along with figure 17.5 in your text, which is a diaphragm of the various volumes and capacities of the lung. Tidal volume is the amount of air drawn into the lungs during normal respiration. In a 70 kilogram adult, it's normally around 500 milliliters. Inspiratory reserve volume is the volume of air that can be inhaled during maximal inspiration beyond the tidal volume. Expiratory reserve volume is the volume of air that can be exhaled in a forced expiration beyond the tidal volume. It is normally 1,200 milliliters. 
Residual volume is the amount of air that remains in the lungs at the end of a maximal exhalation. It actually can't be measured by simple spirometry and requires use of either helium dilution or body plethysmography to characterize. It's normally about 1200 milliliters as well. Total lung capacity is derived from combining all of the lung volumes. It's the sum of residual volume plus expiratory reserve volume plus tidal volume plus inspiratory reserve volume. Vital capacity is the volume that can be exhaled after maximal inspiration. It includes everything except the residual volume. Vital capacity increases with male gender, physical conditioning, and body size, and decreases with age. Vital capacity is the sum of expiratory reserve volume plus tidal volume plus inspiratory reserve volume. Functional residual capacity is the volume remaining in the lungs after a normal expiration. It's the resting or equilibrium volume of the lungs. The pulmonary vascular resistance is lowest at the functional residual capacity. Because it includes the residual volume, it can't be calculated with normal spirometry. Functional residual capacity is the sum of the expiratory reserve volume plus the residual volume. Inspiratory capacity is the maximum volume that can be inspired after normal expiration. Inspiratory capacity is the inspiratory reserve volume plus the tidal volume. I would encourage you to review the equations in your textbook and do some practice questions using these calculations. In addition to the previously stated lung volumes and capacities, there are three important spirometric measurements you should know. Forced expiratory volume in one second is the volume of air that can be forcibly expired in one second after a full inspiration. Forced vital capacity is the volume of air that can be forcibly expired after a full inspiration. The FEV1 over FVC ratio is normally about 0.8, meaning that about 80% of the vital capacity can be forcibly expired in the first second. Obstructive lung disease generally produces a reduced FEV1 over FVC ratio, so less than 0.8, whereas restrictive disease often produces a preserved or elevated ratio, so greater than or equal to 0.8. This will be discussed in greater detail later. There are also two definitions of ventilation one should know, minute ventilation and alveolar ventilation. Ventilation refers to how much volume is being exchanged given a certain amount of time. Minute ventilation, abbreviated VE, is the total volume times the respiratory rate. This is the total volume moving in or out of the lungs per minute. Alveolar ventilation, abbreviated VA, is the quantity of the total volume minus the volume of the dead space times the respiratory rate. This is the total volume of air that actually participates in gas exchange per minute. Compliance and elastance. Compliance refers to the distensibility of a system and is a measure of how volume changes in response to changes in pressure. 
Compliance equals volume divided by pressure. Compliance is inversely proportional to elastance, because something that is very elastic requires a lot of pressure to change the volume a small amount. It resists expansion, or does not comply with expansion. At rest, the lung volume equals the functional residual capacity, and the pressure in the lungs and airways is equal to atmospheric pressure. In this state of equilibrium, the lungs have a natural tendency to collapse, whereas the chest wall has an equal and opposite tendency to expand. These opposing forces create a negative intrapleural pressure. Thus, if air is introduced into the intrapleural space, as occurs in pneumothorax, the chest wall will follow its natural tendency to expand outward while the lungs will collapse. Lung compliance varies in different disease states. Patients with emphysema have an increase in lung compliance because of destruction of elastic fibers in the terminal bronchioles and alveolar walls. At the functional residual capacity, these patients' lungs have a decreased tendency to collapse relative to the tendency of the chest wall to expand. Their lung-chest wall system will therefore be in equilibrium at a higher functional residual capacity, and these patients will often have higher total lung capacities and barrel-shaped chests. In pulmonary fibrosis, on the other hand, lung compliance is decreased because of the fibrotic tissue in the lung parenchyma. At the functional residual capacity, these patients' lungs have an increased tendency to collapse relative to the tendency of the chest wall to expand. Their lung-chest wall system will be in equilibrium at lower functional residual capacities, and these patients tend to have lower total lung capacities. Gas exchange. Gas exchange is the process whereby oxygen and carbon dioxide diffuse between the lungs and blood in the pulmonary capillaries and between the peripheral tissues and systemic capillaries. The rates of diffusion of oxygen and carbon dioxide are directly proportional to the partial pressure difference of the gas and surface area along which diffusion will take place, and inversely proportional to the thickness of the membrane barrier. This is given by the following equation, which is known as Fick's Law. Vx equals d times a times the quantity delta p divided by delta x, where v is the volume of gas transferred per unit time, d is the diffusion coefficient of the gas, a is the surface area, Delta P is the difference in partial pressures of the gas between the membrane barrier, and delta X is the thickness of the membrane. This is mostly intuitive for a high volume of gas transferred per unit time, a high V, you must have a high diffusion coefficient, so the gas must like crossing the membrane. A high surface area, as created collectively by the millions of alveoli, a high difference in partial pressure, which if that's zero, it's at equilibrium and no gas exchange occurs, and a thin membrane, like the simple squamous epithelium of the type 1 pneumocyte. Diffusion is decreased in certain lung diseases because of alterations in these variables. For example, 
Diffusion impairment in emphysema results from destruction of the alveolar capillary membranes, reducing the surface area along which diffusion can occur. In pulmonary fibrosis and pulmonary edema, diffusion is impaired because of increases in the membrane thickness and interstitial volume, respectively. Gas exchange across the alveolar capillary membrane can be classified as being diffusion or perfusion limited. Diffusion-limited exchange In diffusion-limited exchange, gas in the alveoli does not equilibrate with blood by the time it reaches the end of the pulmonary capillary. Thus, the partial pressure gradient for the gas is maintained through the length of the capillary, and diffusion will continue to occur until the blood has left the alveolar capillary membrane. In diffusion-limited exchange, the partial pressure of the gas in the alveoli and blood will not equilibrate, so delta P will never be zero. Carbon monoxide is the classic example of a gas that undergoes diffusion-limited exchange. Oxygen exchange can be diffusion-limited in disease states such as pulmonary fibrosis and emphysema, as well as in healthy individuals during strenuous exercise. Diffusion-limited ex exchange is largely why patients with severe pulmonary fibrosis and emphysema are hypoxemic and are unable to saturate their circulating hemoglobin at near 100%, like healthy individuals. Perfusion-limited exchange Under normal circumstances, in healthy individuals, oxygen exchange is perfusion-limited. This means that in healthy individuals, oxygen normally equilibrates at some point earlier along the length of the pulmonary capillary, such that the partial pressure of oxygen in the alveoli and blood will equalize before the blood leaves the alveolar capillary membrane. Thus, in perfusion-limited exchange, the only way to increase the diffusion of a gas is to increase the blood flow through the pulmonary capillaries along the alveolar capillary membrane. Nitrous oxide, an inhaled anesthetic, is a classic example of another gas that undergoes perfusion-limited exchange. Dead space. The dead space is the volume of the lungs and airways that does not take part in gas exchange. It is a general term that includes both the actual anatomic dead space of the conducting airways and the physiologic dead space in the alveoli. Anatomic dead space is the volume of the conducting airways, the conducting zone discussed earlier, from the nose all the way down to the terminal bronchioles. Because there are no alveoli in the conducting airways, no gas exchange can occur and the conducting airways are dead space. The volume of the conducting airways is approximately 150 milliliters, approximately one third of each 500 milliliter tidal volume. This means that only about 350 milliliters of air actually fills the alveoli and participates in gas exchange during a tidal volume breath. Physiologic dead space, also known as functional dead space, is a more abstract concept. Recall first that by definition, dead space is any part of the lungs or airways that does not participate in gas exchange. Gas exchange not only requires airflow into the alveoli, but also requires perfusion or blood flow. If a portion of the lung is not adequately perfused for any reason, 
The alveoli in that portion will be unable to participate in gas exchange because there will not be any blood flow to those alveoli. This situation is called a ventilation perfusion defect or mismatch, also known as a V over Q mismatch. And the ventilation to the non-perfused alveoli is wasted. VQ mismatch occurs in pathologic conditions, reducing perfusion to the lungs, like in an occlusive pulmonary embolus, but also occurs to a minor degree in normal healthy individuals at baseline. When upright, the apical portions of the lung are better ventilated than they are perfused. Thus, some of this ventilation is wasted and contributes to the physiologic dead space in normal individuals. The volume of physiologic dead space is about equal to the anatomic dead space in normal lungs, but can be significantly greater in conditions causing a VQ mismatch. The concept of VQ mismatch will be discussed in greater detail later. The equation used to calculate the volume of dead space can be found in your textbook. Although this equation appears complex, it's relatively intuitive. The dead space is equal to the fraction of the tidal volume that doesn't participate in gas exchange. For example, if the entire tidal volume breath participated in gas exchange, the arterial carbon dioxide and the expired air carbon dioxide would be identical because everything has come to equilibrium. Therefore, the dead space would be zero. In actuality, the arterial carbon dioxide will be higher than the expired carbon dioxide because the expired carbon dioxide that was received by gas exchange will mix with the air that did not participate in gas exchange. Oxygen transport. Hemoglobin. Oxygen is transported in the blood in two forms, dissolved oxygen and oxygen bound to hemoglobin, the latter of which is the most important. Hemoglobin A comprising 97% of adult hemoglobin, is a globular protein composed of four polypeptide subunits, two alpha and two beta, and an iron-containing heme moiety. Oxygen is poorly soluble in blood, so at a normal partial pressure of oxygen of 100 millimeters of mercury, the amount of oxygen dissolved in blood is negligible and insufficient to meet the body's metabolic requirements. Hemoglobin solves this problem by reversibly binding oxygen and carrying 98% of the total oxygen content of blood within erythrocytes. Hemoglobin can bind four oxygen molecules when the iron is in the ferrous form. That's iron with a 2 plus charge. Adult hemoglobin, hemoglobin A, is composed of two alpha and two beta subunits and accounts for 97% of the total hemoglobin in children older than six months. During embryonic development, however, another type of hemoglobin, known as fetal hemoglobin, or hemoglobin F, predominates. Hemoglobin F is made from two alpha and two gamma subunits and has a much higher affinity for oxygen than hemoglobin A because hemoglobin F binds more poorly with 2,3-bisphosphoglycerate, 2,3-BPG, a potent modulator of the affinity of hemoglobin for oxygen. Hemoglobin F is physiologically critical to the growing fetus because it facilitates the transport of oxygen across the placenta 
by ensuring that the hemoglobin circulating in the fetal circulation will be oxygenated by drawing oxygen from oxygenated maternal hemoglobin A. Oxygen content of blood. The oxygen content of arterial blood can be calculated using an equation found in your textbook. This equation is not important to memorize, but its value is to demonstrate that the vast majority of the oxygen content carried by blood is bound to hemoglobin, with oxygen dissolved in blood contributing only negligibly. We also see from the equation that each gram of hemoglobin binds approximately 1.34 milliliters of oxygen. So assuming a normal hemoglobin concentration of 15 grams per deciliter at 100% saturation, the oxygen binding capacity of all the hemoglobin in a healthy individual is about 20.1 milliliters per deciliter of blood. Oxygen delivery to tissues. The oxygen that enters the bloodstream via the lungs is carried to the tissues by the cardiac output. Oxygen delivery to the tissues can be calculated as follows. Cardiac output times the oxygen content of blood. We can see from this equation that the two ways to increase oxygen delivery to the tissues in a clinical context are to increase the cardiac output or the oxygen content of the blood. Cardiac output can be increased by ensuring adequate preload, like giving IV fluids, increasing contractility, such as using beta-1 adrenergic agonists, such as dobutamine, or decreasing the afterload, like using an arteriolar vasodilator like nitroprusside. Because hemoglobin contains almost all the oxygen content of blood, the oxygen content of blood is best increased by ensuring maximum oxygen saturation, such as through supplemental oxygen to maximize the oxygenated hemoglobin, and increasing the blood hemoglobin concentration, like through a red blood cell transfusion. Note that increasing the oxygen further after 100% saturation will not significantly change the oxygen content, because once the hemoglobin molecules are saturated with oxygen, the dissolved fraction in the plasma is negligible because it's being multiplied by 0 0.003. The hemoglobin oxygen dissociation curve. The hemoglobin oxygen dissociation curve plots the percentage saturation of hemoglobin as a function of partial pressure of oxygen. The curve is sigmoidal in shape because of a property of hemoglobin known as positive cooperativity. Hemoglobin exists in two forms, a tensed state and a relaxed state. It is in a tensed state when no oxygen is bound to the hemoiety, and this tensed conformation sterically inhibits the approach of oxygen. When enough oxygen molecules bind to hemoglobin, it snaps into the relaxed state, in which it has 150 times more affinity for oxygen than the tensed state. Thus, when one molecule of oxygen binds to hemoglobin, hemoglobin relaxes and increases its affinity for a second molecule of oxygen. Once the second molecule of oxygen has bound, its affinity for a third molecule of oxygen is still greater, and so on, until it is fully saturated with a maximum of four oxygen molecules. This property is that of positive cooperativity.
The hemoglobin oxygen dissociation curve can be seen in figure 17.9 in your text. I would highly recommend you check this out because it will definitely be something that's asked on step one. Because of the sigmoidal shape of the hemoglobin oxygen dissociation curve, a partial pressure of oxygen of 100 millimeters of mercury results in 100% hemoglobin saturation, whereas the partial pressure of oxygen of only 25 millimeters of mercury still yields 50% saturation. The curve is flattest between 60 and 100 millimeters of mercury, indicating that humans can tolerate a fair degree of reduction in partial pressure of oxygen without dramatically reducing the oxygen content of hemoglobin. Shifts in the hemoglobin oxygen dissociation curve. Changes in the local environment through which hemoglobin circulates also change the affinity of hemoglobin for oxygen, causing the hemoglobin oxygen dissociation curve to shift to the right or shift to the left. The definition of hemoglobin affinity for oxygen is defined as the P50. The P50 is the partial pressure of oxygen at which the hemoglobin saturation is 50%. In other words, for high affinity, there is a low partial pressure of oxygen that will result in 50% saturation of hemoglobin, and vice versa. Shifts to the right. The hemoglobin oxygen dissociation curve will shift rightward with an increased P50 when there's a decreased affinity for oxygen. This decreased affinity facilitates unloading of oxygen for use by the tissues. Increases in partial pressure of carbon dioxide, temperature, and 2,3 BPG and decreases in pH cause a rightward shift of the curve. If one thinks about each of the factors that causes a rightward shift, it becomes readily apparent that improved unloading of oxygen is physiologically advantageous in these situations. For example, an increase in peripheral tissue metabolic activity, such as that which occurs with vigorous exercise, will result in increased production of carbon dioxide by active skeletal muscle, an increase in proton production, and a decrease in pH. Metabolically active tissues, such as the exercising skeletal muscle in this scenario, has a higher oxygen demand. Thus, the resultant rightward shift facilitates the unloading of oxygen from hemoglobin to these tissues, which need it most. The effect of decreased pH and increased partial pressure of carbon dioxide on the hemoglobin oxygen dissociation curve is known as the Bohr effect. Hypoxemia at high altitudes facilitates production of 2,3-BPG, which causes a rightward shift and helps facilitate delivery of oxygen to the tissues. Shifts to the left. The curve will shift leftward with a decreased P50 when there is an increased affinity of hemoglobin for oxygen. This increased affinity makes the unloading of oxygen more difficult. Decreases in the partial pressure of carbon dioxide, temperature, and 2,3 BPG, and increases in pH cause a leftward shift of the curve. Leftward shifts of the curve are also physiologically advantageous because when demand for oxygen is lower, oxygen is more strongly bound to hemoglobin and less of it is unloaded to the tissues. As noted, hemoglobin F has a left-shifted hemoglobin oxygen dissociation curve because of its much higher affinity for oxygen, 
which is beneficial to the fetus. Carboxyhemoglobin Carboxyhemoglobin is a form of hemoglobin created when carbon monoxide is bound to hemoglobin instead of oxygen. Carbon monoxide binds to hemoglobin with a 250-fold greater affinity than oxygen and reduces the oxygen-carrying capacity of hemoglobin by binding where oxygen normally would. Carbon monoxide also causes a leftward shift of the hemoglobin-oxygen dissociation curve, making it even harder for carboxyhemoglobin to unload the reduced amount of oxygen it can carry to the tissues. The excessive amount of carboxyhemoglobin that is seen in carbon monoxide poisoning is highly lethal and must be immediately treated with 100% oxygen at very high flow rates to displace the carbon monoxide bound to hemoglobin with oxygen. For some patients who are extremely hypoxemic, oxygen may be administered inside a hyperbaric chamber because oxygen delivered at elevated pressures helps displace carbon monoxide from the hemoglobin. Of importance, a patient with carbon monoxide poisoning may actually have a pulse oximetry reading that is falsely normal. The best test for oxygen saturation in carbon monoxide poisoning would be an arterial blood gas. Methemoglobin Hemoglobin normally contains iron in the reduced ferrous state, iron 2+, because this is the only form of iron that can bind oxygen. When the ferrous iron in hemoglobin is oxidized to ferric iron, iron 3+, it is called methemoglobin and is unable to bind oxygen. Methemoglobinemia is caused by drug exposures, like with nitrates or dapsone hemoglobinopathies, and enzyme deficiencies. It is treated by administering methylene blue intravenously. Interestingly, methemoglobin has an affinity for cyanide that is cleverly used in the treatment of cyanide poisoning. Cyanide antidote kits contain nitrites and sodium thiosulfate. Nitrites are administered to oxidize hemoglobin and cause an intentional increase in methemoglobin levels. Because of its natural affinity for cyanide, the methemoglobin quickly binds cyanide, keeping cyanide from exerting its lethal inhibition of the cytochrome oxidase system. Then, thiosulfate is administered to bind the cyanide and form thiocyanate, which can be excreted renally. Remember, patients with methemoglobinemia poisoning may have chocolate brown blood and cyanosis. Oxygen Disorders Hypoxemia Hypoxemia is defined as a low arterial partial pressure of oxygen, or PaO2. The AA gradient, alveolar arterial PO2 gradient, is an indirect measure of ventilation perfusion abnormalities, which will be discussed in greater detail later, and is essential to differentiating causes of hypoxemia. The AA gradient is calculated as follows. Alveolar partial pressure of oxygen, calculated by the alveolar air equation, minus the arterial partial pressure of oxygen, measured by arterial blood gas. The alveolar air equation is as follows. The pressure of inspired oxygen, 
minus the pressure of carbon dioxide modified by the amount of carbon dioxide produced per oxygen consumed. The pressure of inspired oxygen is calculated with the equation the fraction of inspired air that is oxygen times the quantity of the barometric pressure minus the water vapor pressure. I would encourage you to go back and refer to your text for these equations in further detail. The AA gradient in healthy individuals is normally less than 10 millimeters of mercury because oxygen normally equilibrates between the alveolar gas and arterial blood. However, oxygen is unable to equilibrate fully in certain conditions, such as diffusion impairments, like with pulmonary fibrosis, VQ mismatch, or right-to-left cardiac or pulmonary shunts, resulting in an elevated AA gradient. On the other hand, high altitudes and conditions resulting in hypoventilation, such as obstructive sleep apnea, obesity, depressed respiratory drive, and opiate overdose, do not interfere with the ability of alveolar gas and arterial blood to equilibrate, and therefore do not result in an elevated AA gradient. Some common causes of hypoxemia and their effect on the AA gradient are summarized in Table 17.1 in your text. Hypoxia Hypoxia is defined as reduced oxygen delivery to the tissues. The two factors that can reduce oxygen delivery are a reduced cardiac output or reduced blood oxygen content. Because the two most important components of blood oxygen content are the concentration of hemoglobin in blood and the percentage saturation of hemoglobin with oxygen, we can reason that hypoxemia and anemia are causes of hypoxia, in addition to a reduced cardiac output. Moreover, because carbon monoxide poisoning and methemoglobinemia dramatically impede hemoglobin's ability to bind oxygen and therefore reduce the blood oxygen content, carbon monoxide poisoning and methemoglobinemia are other important causes of hypoxia that must be considered. Several causes of hypoxia and their mechanisms are summarized in Table 17.2 in your text. Carbon dioxide transport Carbon dioxide is a major product of oxidative metabolism in the tissues and is transported to the lungs by venous blood in three forms. Bicarbonate This is the predominant form of carbon dioxide transport in the blood, comprising about 90% of carbon dioxide transported in blood. Carbon dioxide produced by the peripheral tissues enters the erythrocytes through diffusion, where it combines with water to produce carbonic acid in a reaction catalyzed by carbonic anhydrase. Carbonic acid instantaneously dissociates into a proton and bicarbonate. The proton generated is buffered by deoxyhemoglobin. This buffering is important in maintaining the pH in the venous blood and within the erythrocytes in physiologic range. Finally, a large portion of the bicarbonate that is generated is pumped into the plasma in exchange for chloride. When the erythrocytes enter the pulmonary circulation, all these reactions reverse and the generated carbon dioxide is expired through the lungs. Bound directly to hemoglobin 
A small fraction of carbon dioxide that enters the erythrocytes binds directly to the N-terminus of hemoglobin, forming carbaminohemoglobin. This accounts for about 5% of the carbon dioxide content in blood. Dissolved carbon dioxide. Like oxygen, carbon dioxide is poorly soluble in blood. Dissolved carbon dioxide accounts for approximately 5% of the carbon dioxide content in blood. The Haldane effect. Desaturated hemoglobin has a greater buffering capacity than saturated hemoglobin, allowing deoxyhemoglobin in the tissues to bind more carbon dioxide. Saturation of hemoglobin with oxygen upon entering the lungs promotes the release of buffered protons, thus promoting the formation of carbon dioxide, which can then be expired. Pulmonary circulation. The pulmonary circulation is a lower pressure and lower resistance system than the systemic circulation. Because the circulatory system is a closed circuit, the cardiac output of the right ventricle equals the pulmonary blood flow, which in turn equals the left ventricular output. Regulation of pulmonary perfusion. Oxygen exerts an elegant regulatory effect on the flow of blood through the pulmonary circulation that is crucial to maximizing gas exchange in the lungs. When the partial pressure of oxygen within alveoli decreases, the pulmonary vasculature around alveoli with low PaO2 will constrict to shift blood flow away from these alveoli towards alveoli with a higher PaO2. This hypoxic vasoconstriction ensures that blood flows preferentially to regions of lung that are better ventilated so that ventilation and perfusion are matched as well as possible. Understanding the concept of hypoxic vasoconstriction is essential to understanding the mechanism whereby certain lung diseases and chronic hypoxemia can result in pulmonary hypertension, discussed later in greater detail. Ventilation to perfusion ratio. The ratio of alveolar ventilation, or V, to pulmonary perfusion, or Q, is the ventilation to perfusion, or VQ, ratio. Although having an equal amount of V and Q is ideal in maximizing gas exchange, the normal value of VQ ratio across the entire lung in a person who is standing happens to be about 0 0.8. This means that the amount of alveolar ventilation, measured in liters per minute, is about 80% of the amount of the perfusion in liters per minute in the lungs. The unevenness of VQ across the entire lung is the result of perfusion being uneven across the three lung zones when a person is standing. Because of the effect of gravity in the upright lung, the more dependent portions of the lung receive more blood flow and are better perfused than the less dependent portions of the lung. Although there is some regional variation in ventilation as well, it is not nearly as dramatic as the regional variations in perfusion, so the VQ ratio is greatest in zone 1, where V over Q is 3, and lowest in zone 3, where V over Q is 0.6. Thus. One could say that when standing upright, the apical portions of the lung are better ventilated than they are perfused, or V over Q is greater than 1, 
resulting in so-called wasted ventilation. Whereas the lung bases are better perfused than they are ventilated, or V over Q is less than 1, resulting in wasted perfusion. When a person is supine, however, the effect of gravity is removed and blood flow is almost uniform throughout the lung, resulting in an average V over Q closer to 1 across the lungs. The regional variations in VQ lead to corresponding variation in the efficiency of gas exchange in the different lung zones. Because of these differences, the apical portions of the lungs, where VQ is higher, have a relatively higher PO2 and lower PCO2 because the gas exchange is greatest here. Similarly, the lung bases, where VQ is lower, have a relatively lower PO2 and higher PCO2 because less gas exchange occurs at the basis, given the low VQ ratio there. VQ mismatch. There are two extremes of VQ mismatch that are important to understanding the pathophysiology of certain lung conditions. A shunt describes a situation in which blood flow is normal, but zero ventilation takes place, such that the V over Q is zero. A shunt can occur in a small segment of the lungs, like with lobar pneumonia with alveolar infiltrates, an entire lung, such as with endobronchial tumor occluding a mainstem bronchus, or even in both lungs, such as with a piece of food occluding the trachea. In this situation, no gas exchange can take place in the portion of lung that is perfused but not ventilated. In this shunt physiology, the portion of blood entering the region of lung with airway obstruction, the shunt fraction, has the same PO2 and PCO2 as mixed venous blood. When this blood mixes with systemic arterial blood, it lowers the overall PaO2 and can cause significant hypoxemia, depending on the amount of lung affected by the shunt physiology and whether or not the affected individual has underlying pulmonary disease, such as emphysema. The reduction in PaO2 caused by shunting causes a widening of the AA gradient. Shunting as a result of the extreme VQ mismatch described is identical to the effect from right-to-left cardiac shunts that occur with abnormalities of cardiac anatomy. The other extreme of VQ mismatch occurs when areas of lung that are well-ventilated are not perfused, such that V over Q is reaching infinity resulting in additional dead space. Recall that dead space is the volume of the lungs and airways that does not take part in gas exchange. Because no gas exchange can occur in the absence of perfusion, the ventilation of non-perfused alveoli is wasted ventilation, and the PO2 and PCO2 of the alveolar gas will be similar to that of inspired air in the trachea or other airways of the conducting zone that do not participate in gas exchange. Dead space physiology is best illustrated by a pulmonary embolus occluding blood flow to a portion of lung, or even an entire lung in the case of an embolus in one of the main pulmonary arteries. Both extremes of VQ mismatch result in elevations of the AA gradient, but can be differentiated by the administration of 100% oxygen. In a significant shunt, Administering 100% oxygen cannot overcome the hypoxemia caused by the shunt. 
On the other spectrum of VQ mismatch, in which dead space is created because of occlusion of blood flow to well-ventilated lung, 100% oxygen should result in some improvement in PaO2. This method of using 100% oxygen delivery to differentiate shunt from other causes of VQ mismatch is often referred to as a shunt study in the clinical setting. Okay, that will do it for the physiology portion of the pulmonology chapter. Next, we will discuss pulmonology pathology. With that, we wrap up today's episode of the Crush Step 1 podcast. A big thank you to Elsevier Incorporated, the publishing company behind Crush Step 1, as well as all of my other books, for allowing us to put out this book in podcast format. Thank you for joining us, and please check out our other chapters.